We are continuing in Daniel chapter 6. We read about half the chapter last week, went through about half of the chapter. This is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, one of the most famous Bible stories where Daniel is, is cast into a lion's den. And it talks about how the reasons we went through last time, the reasons why this happened, Daniel was one of, so you, had, you have uh, King Cyrus, who is king over all of Persia. He has designated King Darius to be king over the province of Babylon. Not just the city, but the province of Babylon, which is sort of like the state, that area. Under King Darius, there were three men, Daniel and two others, and under, that, under them, uh, another 120 satraps who are governing the kingdom. Daniel so distinguished himself, and remember Daniel's in his mid-80s at this point, he has so distinguished himself that King uh, King Darius is going to promote him over everyone in, in the province of Babylon. And so the other commissioners get pretty upset at this, and they go and they try to find something that Daniel has done wrong in his work, and they could find nothing. And so what they do is they actually change the law in order to get him uh, uh, contrary to to the law of the land to get with regard to his religion, with regard to his faith. So this is what's happening. So if you look in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 6, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they couldn't find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. The first conspiracy, they couldn't find anything against him with regard to his work, nor could they find anything against him with regard to the law of his God. So they had the law changed so that they could now entrap him with his, his, his faith. And in verse 6 it says, Then the commissioners and the satraps came together by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. So, this was a malicious accusation. They said that Daniel was part of this. Daniel was never part of this. Daniel never agreed to it. But in there saying that all the commissioners, all of us, are in favor of this, they lied. So, they lied to the king. And this is going to soon really catch up with them. The lies that we we tell certainly catch up with us. And so, the king signs this injunction because it feeds his pride. So, now all petitions have to go through him for a period of 30 days. And this can really fill your pride. You know, you get people come and they tell you you're so good. What happens? You start believing that you're really good when you're really not. And uh, uh, this happens to rock stars. This happens to athletes. And uh, it happens to young men. If some young woman shows them some attention and says, oh, you're, you're, you're funny. I mean, all of a sudden, the guy really believes he's funny. Or, or if a young woman says, wow, you're strong, and all of a sudden he'll start believing that he's strong. Just like that. Never believed it before, but now he believes it. 
And uh, uh, so, so they start puffing up this king, King Darius, in his own mind. And so then Daniel goes ahead and, and so, they, they, so the, he goes ahead and he makes the injunction. Um, and, and then we, 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 we see the result of that. And so let's, let's turn to uh, uh, look at, at um, verse, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So what Daniel would do is he would go up into his chamber, he would open the window, and he would face Jerusalem and he would kneel down three times a day and pray. If you meet an Orthodox Jew, they will pray three times a day following this pattern of Daniel. When I was an undergraduate, I took up this practice of praying three times a day. Praying in the morning, praying sometime in the afternoon, and praying in the evening. Why do I do it? It's purely something of choice. We are not commanded that we have to do that, but there are practices we can put upon ourselves. I'll never put that upon you because there's not a New Testament commandment to do that. I put it upon myself. It's something that I've done by choice. Ever since I was an undergrad, I would go to the chapel around noontime, fall on my knees and pray. Why did I do that? I found from this pattern of Daniel. That's something that I wanted to do. His facing Jerusalem was following an admonition of King Solomon. So King Solomon had, uh, had directed in, uh, in when he had dedicated the temple, he said, Lord, as they dedicate this temple, if ever the people rebel and they are carried off to a foreign land because of their rebellion, if they humble themselves and confess their sins, and face toward this land and this city and this temple that I am building, this house that I have built, hear their prayer and bring them back to this land. This is why Daniel faces Jerusalem. If you talk to an Orthodox Jew today, they will pray three times a day and they will face Jerusalem. An Orthodox Jew gave me a, uh, a little compass and I have it at home. And it's a compass and you, you look at what city you're in in the world and it has a number. And then, and then what you do is you take the needle of the compass and you put it on, on uh, you, you take one end and it, you put it so, so that it overlaps with that number and the other end points right toward Jerusalem. You can do that much easier now with your smartphone. You can tell exactly the direction that Jerusalem is. But this is what they'll do. They'll, pull, they'll face toward Jerusalem and they will pray three times a day. So most Jews stand when they pray. They don't kneel. In fact, uh, Solomon started standing when he was dedicating the temple and then he went up on a platform and he knelt and he prayed. Why Jews stand when they pray, I'm not sure. Most of the testimony of Scripture, most of the testimony of Scripture is that the people got on their knees to pray. And that is also the testimony of Scripture in the New Testament. But there's no commandment to do that. So we are not obliged to have to do that. It would be purely by choice. But if you look at position when it's mentioned in the Bible, when people prayed, it was generally on their knees. When they came before God, they generally fell right down on their face. That was the, the position when they were, they were either on their knees or they collapsed face forward on the ground. So if you look at position, that's what it was. There is an instance where David was in the temple and it says, and he sat before the Lord. Jews will stand when they pray, but they'll always sit when they teach. If you go into a synagogue today, 
the rabbi will sit down and begin to teach. Jesus did that. Jesus, it says, and he sat down and he began to teach the people. Several references to this. Jesus would sit when he, he taught. That was the practice. So, so Daniel was, would, would, was doing this three times a day. And it says that he did exactly as he was doing previously. So he didn't change anything. This was his normal practice. That's how these guys knew. They said, let's do this for one month, institute this regulation, this injunction for one month, because we'll catch him, because he's going to have to do it for 30 days, three times a day. We got one in 90 chances of catching him. We'll catch him. Then these men, in verse 11, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and they spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days, is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. You see this statement again and again repeated here. The law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. It's almost as if they're taught this from childhood because they say it over and over again. When you say the law of the Medes and the Persians, you say, and it cannot be revoked. Remember, even the king is subject to the law. Unlike, Dar- uh, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was not subject to the injunctions that he made. He was a monarch. He was above the law. These kings in Persia, Medo-Persia, are under the law. Then they answered in verse 13 and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. So first they clarify with the king, haven't you made this injunction? Yes, I made that injunction. They said, well, Daniel, and they didn't just say Daniel, and Daniel he knew. Daniel was one of his three top commissioners. There were only three, and he was one of the three, and he was about to be promoted to being number one. But they say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. In other words, Daniel the Jew. Daniel the Jew. So you see the anti-Semitism in this. The guy's in his mid-80s. He's lived more than 60 years in Babylon. And they have to key out that, oh, he, he came 60 years ago. As one of these exiles. No, this is, this is, you can just see the seeds of what they're laying here. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah. So in other words, these people didn't like this. These Medo-Persians were upset about this guy who was an exile from that land. They were probably all Medes or Persians, except for Daniel. And they keyed in on this. And then they said, he pays no attention to you, which is not true. He respected the king. He honored the king. He followed everything he needed to follow politically, but on this he could not follow. But, it's, but to, to characterize him as paying no attention to the king, you see how that's, a, a, again, a misleading word. And he, it says, or to the injunction that you signed, but he keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. So the king realizes that he had been trapped. He had been trapped by these men's malicious accusation. And by signing this injunction, he trapped himself. Sometimes you sign something and all of a sudden you're trapped. 
by, by signing a document. That's what the king felt like. And he's looking for ways to get Daniel out of this because he really liked Daniel. He knew that this was a malicious act on these men's part. So he tried to deliver him right on into the evening. But it says, even until sunset. But by sunset, they're going to have to execute the judgment. But he was unable to do this. And these men, then these men come by agreement to the king in verse 15 and said, recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king established establishes may be changed. Now they've got him boxed in. If he disobeys this, he could get thrown in the lion's den. So this king is trying to deliver them and they are trapping him and they're saying, recognize this. Oh, they're going to pay for this. They're going to pay for this. But at this moment, the king is trapped and he is boxed in by this malicious accusation of these rulers of the land. Verse 16, Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke to Daniel and said, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. So it says Daniel was cast into the den. So the den is about 15 feet deep, so the lions can't jump out, and he was cast in. So you get a guy in his mid-80s who's pushed into the den. And what happens to someone in their mid-80s when they fall about 15 feet? I mean, they're, they're likely to get hurt. Not going to last long, the lions are going to eat him up anyway. That's generally what would happen. He's cast into the den, but before he's cast into the den, the king says to him, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. This king knew something very different about Daniel. Remember, Daniel only served three years total under the kingdom of Cyrus. So this is certainly less than three years, probably within a year or two of his meeting. Uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, meeting Darius for the first time. So under Cyrus, he only served three years. Being under Darius, he's under Cyrus. He's only known Darius for less than three years. Darius is so moved by this guy. He says, your God, whom you constantly serve. He doesn't say, the God. The God. He says, your God. He recognized Daniel has a closeness of relationship here that extends way beyond what most of the polytheists in his kingdom have. This is not another, the God, you know, the God Zor or something is going to do this for you. No. He says, your God, whom you constantly serve. He recognized that Daniel was constantly serving his God. When we let people know who we are in the workplace, in the institutions where we serve, this gives them an opportunity to keep an eye on us and to watch us. They will see what is our motivation. Your God, whom you constantly serve. When I left the, the University of South Carolina, I taught there for 11 years. And I had gotten this offer from Rice. I left in 1999 to come to Rice. And, and the president brought me in his office. And I didn't even know that he knew this. But the president brought me in his office and he says, I, 
He says, is there anything that I can do to get you to change your mind? I said, no, we're, uh, I'm going. I don't want you to have to go through anything. He says, I, I need you to meet my staff. And he brought me to his staff, the president of the university. He says, I want you to know something. The reason why we've been so blessed over the years is because this guy goes to that chapel and he prays every day because I see him going to the chapel every day at noontime. I didn't know the president knew this, but he saw it. And he said, this is why we've been so blessed over the years. It's because this guy is going to pray. When we do things, when we do things, people see it. Darius saw this in, in Daniel's life. He said, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. So he recognized that Daniel's God is different than everybody else's God. Daniel's relationship is different. This is a God who can deliver this is a God who can really do things as opposed to these fictitious gods that made out of wood and stone that really don't do anything. So he recognized something and then he was thrown in, the stone, he sealed it, and all the commissioners, it says, is, the stone was laid at the mouth, sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet ring of his nobles. So these top guys come in, they seal it too because they want to make sure that the king doesn't take them out prematurely. So they sealed it as well. The king goes off to his palace. It says he fasted. He spent the night fasting. I mean, it's hard to fast. And especially for a king. I mean, you get these big spreads and women drop grapes in your mouth. And there's all these, 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 these fine things that you get. And he decides to fast. And no entertainment is brought to him. No dancing women. No court jester. Nothing. And he couldn't even sleep. He really cared about Daniel. He had tried to deliver him, but he was stuck by what he had signed. Verse 19, Then the king arose at dawn. So this is at dawn. I mean, just, just at daybreak, because now he's allowed to take him out, because he's fulfilled the law. He's thrown him into the lion's den. What happens in there isn't specified. You just have to throw them in. Now it's dawn. It's the next day. He can do it. He, he goes out there at the break of day. And he went in haste to the lion's den. Remember, kings don't generally run. Kings don't run. They're dignified. They walk. Especially in the Middle East. To this day, men don't generally run. They don't. Now, you know, younger guys are, are jogging and stuff, but men don't run in the Middle East. You're dignified. You don't run. Children run. Men don't run. The king is running. People, wasn't that the king who just ran by? <laughs> Strange. The king went in haste to the lion's den, and when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? The king really had amazing faith in Daniel and in Daniel's God to even shout in there. I mean, if, if he, you know, sure, his voice was troubled, your voice would be troubled too. If a friend of yours was thrown in there. But he, he, he shouts out to him. And Daniel says, then, the king, then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I, found, I was found innocent before, before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So Daniel Shouts back from inside this lion's den. Remember, there's a, there's a stone over it. But their voices are going through. And, and Daniel is very specific. He says, 
He says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. So God sent an angel, and very often when you see angel of the Lord, it is, it is a testimony of Jesus in the Old Testament. Lots of precedent for this sort of thing. But whether it was just an ordinary angel or the angel of the Lord, Jesus, it says that he shut the lion's mouths. That, so, in other words, the lions were not asleep. The lions were not, not hungry. The lions' mouths were shut. Staples. I mean, the, the, the angel had shut their mouths. It, they're probably trying all night to get their mouths open and start growling at this guy and just eat him. They can't get their mouths open. Maybe he retracted their claws as well. We don't know. But we do know their mouths were closed. Very specific, the Word of God is. He shut the lion's mouth. That's it. He shut their mouths. And he says, I have not done anything against my God nor against you, O king. I, he said, uh, uh, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I've committed no crime. Verse 23, then the king was very pleased and he gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. He had fulfilled the law. The law, law never said, and they have to be eaten by lions. No, you just had to throw them in the lion's den. And it was such a sure thing, you didn't have to specify after that. It was up to the lions to take care of it. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he trusted in his God. So remember, just the fall of 15 feet should have you know, broken his wrists and his ankles or something. Nothing was broken on him. They, they took him up and it says, Then the king gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Whoa. Now, in Israel, in Israel, there was, it was specified that a father, in the law of Moses, a father shall not be put to death for his son's misdeeds, nor shall a son be put to death for his father's misdeeds. This isn't Israel. This is Medo-Persia. And you, you, you exercise judgment upon a man, not just upon a man, but upon his wife and his children. You go, oh, that's so unfair. Well, it's not our society. This is up to them. You go tell them that they were unfair. This is what they did. The whole family would go in there. He threw the whole, they threw the families of these men in there. It says they didn't even make it to the bottom. They would just, and the lions are there with their mouths now wide open. They can get their... And just as soon as they were thrown in, each lion was just hors d'oeuvres. As they were coming in, they never even hit the bottom. It says before they even hit the bottom, all the bones were crushed. They crushed their bones before they even landed in the bottom of the den. So these lions were definitely hungry. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the domination, all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and, and, and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So that Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius 
and in the reign of Cyrus, uh, and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So you see that he comes with this with this uh, uh, with this new decree. It says he's making this decree that everybody has to fear and tremble at the God of Daniel. It's hard to make people do this. You know, how do you make somebody fear and tremble at the God of Daniel? The decree came. Okay, I'm trembling. Okay, <laughs> I don't want to go in the lion's den. You're to fear and tremble at the God of Daniel. And he had so much respect. Look at all the respect that was garnered. And, and uh, there are things that you don't compromise on. Daniel could do all sorts of things. He studied all the things that he needed to do in school, to work in the government, everything. He served in the government, but there were things that he would not budge on. He drew a line in the sand. When it came to worshiping God, he drew a line in the sand. He says, this I'm going to have to die for. This I die for. There was no question. There was no wrestling in his mind. He just went up and started doing what he was kept doing. He kept praying to his God. There are things that we don't budge on. And I'll tell you what the Scriptures teach us that we don't budge on. We are to obey government. We are to pay our taxes. If you want to you know, say, I don't have to obey government. I'm a Christian and I don't have to pay my taxes. You're going to go to jail. All right? They're going to catch up with you. You're going to go to jail. So you pay your taxes. The Bible says... Give honor to, uh, who, uh, to honor to whom honors do, do, pay taxes to whom taxes is due. And so we pay taxes. And we respect our authorities. The, 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 the Bible talks, tells us to respect governing authorities. God has placed them there. But there are three areas that as believers, we follow God first. And that's number one in the area of worship. We are to worship Jesus and we see examples of this in the New Testament. That when the governing authorities told Peter and John not to worship or speak about this king, they just kept worshiping and speaking about him. So in worship and in salvation, in other words, if there's an injunction passed, nobody can change their religion and come come to be a Christian. No, that is something we violate. We violate. We worship we, we get saved, and the last thing that we see as the pattern in scriptures is the protection of imminent human life. The, the, uh, the midwives were told to cast the sons of Israel, any newborn son, into the Nile River. It says they disobeyed the command of Pharaoh, who was king over the land. They disobeyed him, and God blessed them for disobeying him. And God enriched them with families themselves. Protection of imminent human life, worship and salvation are the areas that we just don't budge on as believers. The other thing that's really interesting here is you start seeing the pattern of what happens to Jews in the diaspora. That they will be persecuted for being Jewish. Daniel, the exile from Judah. Daniel, the Jew. They will be persecuted in the diaspora. And what we're going to learn in the next chapter is that God doesn't always deliver them. To this point in this book, He has delivered Daniel and his three friends. But then we're going to see in the next chapter that that's, he's, he's going to warn them that in the future, that's not always going to be the case. You're going to need to be prepared to die. And, and also what we see is the pattern of His protection upon His people. His protection. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through this covenant, this covenant to, um, to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. 
what you see is the outworkings of the Abrahamic covenant. So there was a covenant made to Abraham. It says, now the Lord, this is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to go through many scriptures here. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of thy country and from, the, and from your kindred and from your father's house and go into the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless and I will bless you and I will bless your name and I will make your name great. And you are to be a blessing and I will bless them that bless you and I will curse him that curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He made a covenant with Abraham. He said, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. If you are an anti-Semite, if you don't like Jewish people, let me just warn you what your life is going to be like. Let's look historically what has happened. This is why you don't have to agree with them and their government policies. You don't have to agree with anything. I just advise, if you don't agree with them, just don't verbalize it. Just keep quiet about it. Your life will be much, much better. In, in, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. So this is how he divides up the nations. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of men, he set bounds of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. This is very interesting. God established nations noting boundaries according to the number of Jews. This is what it says. It's very odd. This is what God chose to do. And you start to see immediately this outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. Abram, Abraham, this, this message came to him. He needs to go into Egypt because of a famine. As he goes into Egypt, this is in Genesis chapter 12, his wife, Sarah, is very good looking. Even as she was pretty old by this time, she was so good looking. He said, if we go to Egypt and these Egyptians see you, they're going to want to marry you, so they're going to kill me because I'm your husband, so just say you're my sister. And it turned out that was a half lie because it was his half sister. So, but it, so anyway, they get into Egypt, they see how pretty she is, and they snatch her and put her in Pharaoh's harem. And then it says, the Lord came and he plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So immediately you see the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. Because if he had slept with Sarai, this would put a negation on the offspring of Abram. The promise that he had made that he would bless the world through that seed. And Pharaoh finds out, he says, why did you do this to me? And he says, take your wife and take all of, all." and he gave him a bunch of riches. He said, just go. Well, you'd, you'd, you'd uh, think that, that Abram would have learned. So, so not long after that, there's another passage where, with uh, Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech, he goes into this other, in this, this city of Gerar, Abimelech, who's king there, they, he sees this beautiful woman, Sarai, his wife, so he takes her into his harem. I guess kings could do this. You know, you see somebody, just take them. And all of a sudden, it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, thou art a dead man because of the woman that you have taken, for she is another man's wife. So imagine God coming to you in a dream and said, Oh, I'm going to kill you today. <laughs> 
I mean, this is what he said. You're a dead man, Abimelech. Abimelech, what did I do? And Abimelech complains to the Lord. He says, in the integrity of my heart, the guy told me it was his sister. He says, I know, that's why I haven't killed you. <laughs> and and uh, so he gave him back. And it says that, that now you see curse for curse in kind. If he had slept with Sarai, he would have cut off all the seed of Abram. What had happened? He had closed the womb of all the women in Abimelech's house. And he told Abimelech, have Abram pray for you, have Abraham pray for you, and their wombs will be open again. And he had Abram pray for him, their wombs were open, and he gave him gifts. He said, go away. I don't want, even want you here. It was curse for curse in kind. You're going to curse her seed, I will curse your seed. And that's the outworking that then starts to develop. The same sort of thing that, that those who bless you will be blessed. So, so uh, um, when Jacob goes into the house of Laban, and Laban was an idol worshiper, Laban even says, I have been so blessed all these years because of the work that you've done. When Joseph ends up being sold into slavery, and he ends up in Potiphar's house, in Egypt, as a slave, it says everything in Potiphar's house was blessed because of Joseph being there. The blessing, the blessing. You bless the Jew, you're going to be blessed. You see the outworking of the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant through nations. Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. and they st- First, they were not enslaved in Egypt. They were just living in Egypt because of a famine. And then they were put into slavery. Taskmaster came over them. The Egyptians started tormenting them. And what did the Egyptian pharaoh say? He said, take every one of the male children of Israel and throw them into the Nile when they're born. That is the first example of annihilation of the Jewish race, planned by the Egyptians. And so it was to kill those boys by drowning. On their way out of Egypt, God killed all the firstborn of Egypt. And then how did he kill all the army of Egypt? by drowning in the, in the Red Sea. Curse for curse in kind. You cursed my children by drowning. All your sons will die by drowning. The curse for curse came in, in kind, nationally. You see this whole national uh, movement. Uh, and, and then, and then uh, uh, there was another king, that, that uh, uh, Amalek, the nation of Amalek, had sworn to wipe out Israel in war. So what did God do? He said, I swear I will kill Amalek. By my own self, I testify to you that I will kill Amalek and everyone of his entire nation I will kill in war. And he killed them in war, eventually through King Saul. He killed them in war, all of them. Now, sometimes the outworking takes 400 years as it did in the case of Amalek. But Amalek was wiped out. Curse for curse in kind. You said you'd kill them in war. I will kill all of you in war. You see the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that came forth. And then this continues on in the book of Esther. Amazing book. They came against the Jews. Mordecai, uh, uh, Haman, Haman came against Mordecai. Had big gallows, 50 feet high, built to hang Mordecai on. Haman himself was hung on those gallows. They had said that the Jews would all be destroyed. All of them will be wiped out in Persia on a certain day. And it turned out that the Jews were able to rise up and they were able to conquer their enemies on that day. Curse for curse, blessing for blessing, happens in kind. You see the, the, this, this, uh, this same outworking throughout, throughout uh, uh, even post-biblical history. 
you see the same thing. It happened in, in, uh, in New Testament history. Who was the one who Jesus went to right away when he said, I'm going to go bless this guy? It was a centurion. And it says of that centurion, he says, he is worthy. This is what the Jews themselves testified. This centurion is worthy that you should do this for him, for he loves our nation and he himself has built us our synagogue. So a, a Roman centurion built a synagogue for the Jews. When Jesus comes into the town, this Roman centurion says, my slave is sick. sick. Could you go to Jesus and tell him to come and heal my slave, please? And as soon as they come and they tell Jesus, and they said, he built us our synagogue, Jesus said, I'm on my way. He's a Gentile, but I'm on my way because he has blessed, my He's blessed Israel. I'm on my way. Who was the first Gentile to be saved? Who was the first Gentile to be saved? Cornelius. Who was Cornelius? He was a centurion. Cornelius was a centurion and it says of him that, that uh, he was righteous in the sight of God and, he, and, and uh, that he did good to the nation of the Jews. He was constantly giving alms to them. Who was the first Gentile to be saved? The one who was good to the Jews was the first Gentile to be saved. You see the same outworking of this in post-biblical history. You read about the expulsion of Jews from, from uh, Spain. It was just, just horrendous what they did to the Jews and, and, and uh, expelled them from, uh, got rid of them from Spain. And in doing this, they lost their scholars, their professors, their doctors, their bankers, and Spain never recovered. Spain's influence was huge. To show you how, how big Spain's influence was, every country in, in South and Central America speaks Spanish, except for Brazil, speaks Portuguese. But all of South America, you see their influence. Right after that, their, their, their armada soon after that was totally destroyed in, in, a, uh, in a storm. And you saw that nation just plummet after that. You see, even see this outworking in modern history, in my lifetime. There were four Arab nations. There was Syria, Iraq, Jordan and Egypt all swore that they would wipe Israel off the face of the map in 1967 during the Six-Day War. And, and Nasser from, from, uh, from Egypt said that the Jews would be swimming back through the Mediterranean, back to Europe from where they came. It turned out that it was the Egyptians, his own people, that were swimming back over the Suez Canal to get away when this war started on day four of, of that war. Uh, uh, King Hussein of Jordan said he would extend his border right over to the Mediterranean. On day three, his border started moving the other way and pushed him right out of that side, right onto the other side of the Jordan River. Curse for curse, blessing for blessing in kind. This is what you see. You see this pattern. And you see this pattern also in, in prophecy. How Russia is going to be destroyed. Rosh will come into the land. How they are going to be destroyed. We have all this mapped out in the scriptures. It's all mapped out for us in the word of God. So it's interesting. If you want to destroy the Jews, it's mapped out in one way. There's only one way to do it. And it's described clearly in the Bible how to do this. And this is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35. Clearly mapped out. You want to destroy the Jews? This is how to do it. Thus saith the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. It, if these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then I will cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, 
says the Lord. You want to know how to destroy Israel? It is clear. First, destroy the sun, the moon, and the stars. Once you've done that, you will be able to destroy the people of Israel. This is what we see in this pattern of this book. They have gone through great, great mass extinctions. They've tried to, be, have tried to, to extinguish these people many times, but they just keep bouncing back. It is just utterly unexplainable without the intervention of God. Historians, and I've got these documented in that historians, many of them have said that the history of the Jews is an enigma. It makes no sense based on materialism. There is something different, and that's the outworking that we see in the life of Daniel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, for these young people, that you would give them a heart for you, that they would seek you and seek your face. Father, for those here who don't know you, save their souls, I pray. Draw them to your Son. For the glory of God, draw them to your Son, I pray. Father, you are good and merciful, and we praise your name. Amen.